Let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 6. As we looked at last week, there's a lot of stuff to cover in the rest of 2 Samuel. We will obviously not get to it in the time we have left, but I do want to cover some some very important things that I feel are uh, important spiritually to understand David and his life and what God is doing with David and through David. And so we'll take a look at some of, one of those this morning and then some more as in the, in the week, couple of weeks to come. We don't have much time left. We're starting a new quarter in June. We'll start the study of John then, the Gospel of John. So we'll try to finish this out, give you some, some really good highlights, what I think are good highlights. So here we are. Uh, by way of, I thought we'd do a quick, um, what do we start with normally? Review. Quick review, oral review. What did we talk about last week? What was, uh, what was the situation? What was being brought to Jerusalem? Ark of the Covenant. Tell me about how they were bringing the Ark of the Covenant. What were some things that were involved in bringing the Ark to Jerusalem? Okay, it was on a cart. Was it supposed to be on a cart? It wasn't supposed to be on a cart. How was it supposed to be brought in? How was it supposed to be conveyed? Anytime it was conveyed, how was it supposed to be conveyed? Carried with the poles, the the acacia wood poles that were overlaid with gold and put through the rings. And who was going to pick them up by the poles? The Levites. The Levites would do that. That's how it was supposed to be carried, any way it went, anywhere it went, any time it went. But that's not what was happening. Tell me something else about how it was being brought in. Was it at night or undercover? Was it secret? It was a big, broad daylight thing with a parade. They had musicians and singers. They had everybody out there. It was a flamboyant affair. David was happy about bringing the ark in. And then what happened? Uzzah touched it. The oxen just about upset it. And Uzzah touched it. And God struck Uzzah. And Uzzah died. And what was David's response at first? He got angry. He got angry at first. What was his response later when he had time apparently to think about it? Okay. He said, we didn't do this right. We, we need to do it, but we need to do it right. And so instead of staying angry, he got over his anger because he realized he was the one at fault. Being He, he took it upon himself. We didn't do it right. And so they backed up. There's a huge lesson there. For us in several ways about about taking a little introspection when something goes wrong especially and seeing if there's any fault in us and if there is you own up to it and you do something about it you fix it you make it right you change anybody ever watch the red green show it's this okay charles so you know it's a good show if charles watches it it's about this canadian redneck and it's, it's a great show. Red Green. Check it out if you've got any kind of way to look for TV shows from Canada. The Red Green Show. And uh, usually about every episode they have a, a meeting of the, the men meet. And they have the, every time the men meet they have a men's prayer. And it says, and this is the men's prayer. I'm a man, but I can change if I have to. <laughs> that's it. That's the prayer. <laughs> so... <laughs> So that, that's that. I thought of that when I thought of David. I said, "Oh yeah, I can change if I have to. Well, if I need to, 
And that's what David did. And I think that's why he was a man after God's own heart. No matter what he did that was wrong, he always came back to God. He always came back to God. He always came back to God. Didn't matter. Yeah. Reached up and touched the ark to steady it. And all of a sudden he's gone. And, and then you go, what happened? And God says, it's okay, you're, you're with me. With <laughs> me? Yeah. We don't know that, but I yeah. thought that was a good comment. It's a lot of things that we don't know uh, that God takes care of behind the scenes. He's doing that all the time in, in each of our lives, and he may have been doing that for us. So that's where we are, and now we're going to bring about, bring about, we're going to read about uh, how they finally are bringing the ark into Jerusalem the right way. And this is still in chapter 6, uh, so we're going to pick up, however, not with the, the ark itself, but we're going to pick up at verse 16, as you can see in the readings there, Second Samuel chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, and then 20 to 23. And we'll just read these first two readings, and then we'll stop and talk about this. Uh, so who wants the first one, six, chapter 6, six to 19, 16 to 19? All right, Rich, you've got that one. Who wants 20 to, is it 20 to 23? Is that all it is? Yeah, that's all it is. Okay, who wants that one? Pretty short. Charles, you, I'll, I'll let Preston do it. Just, okay. So Rich and Preston. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, or Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering a burnt offering and a peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. When David returned home to bless the household, to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls, of his servants, and as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father, or anyone from this house, when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. All right. Quite a dichotomy of sentiment here, we might say. So the ark is being brought in, and what's David doing as the ark is coming into Jerusalem? He's celebrating. How is he celebrating? He's dancing. He is dancing. What's he wearing? Now, we didn't read the part where it said what he was wearing, but if you go a couple of verses up, verse 14, he's wearing a linen ephod, and there's no description about the size of the ephod or its shape or anything like that. He's just wearing a linen ephod. So he's got clothes on. 
He's wearing something. And he's dancing like crazy. As Why is he dancing like crazy? This is one happy young man. He worships his God and the ark of his God is finally coming to Jerusalem. And this is huge because God has always talked about a place where he would put his name. And when I find that place where I will put my name, then that's where you will worship me. And it seems as though this is what's come into place. It is. I'm not sure how aware David is of all this. But, of course, Jerusalem will come to be the place where the ark will rest permanently uh, until God decides to remove it by the Romans. At any rate, or first by the Babylonians perhaps, but at any rate, he's celebrating the return of the ark. How does his first wife feel about all this? Why is she disgusted? Now, I'm asking for speculation because it doesn't say. Okay. That's what she says. Is that actually what happened? Or is she exaggerating? Is she making more of what? Why is she not thrilled that the ark of the God of Israel is coming into her town? What's that? Right. It's possible. There's something there. Had her taken away from her husband and brought to his. That's another possibility. So she was his husband, and then she was taken from David by circumstances, and now she was another guy's wife, and David says, I I want my wife back. I want Michael back. And I'm not sure if that's how she pronounced her name, but at any rate, that's he has her now, and she is in his home. Apparently, they are living as man and wife, because after he finishes delivering the ark, It says he comes home, but what does he come home to do? Did you catch that? He comes home to bless his house. That's what it says. Comes home to bless his household there in verse 20. So he's not just coming back after a hard day's dancing. He's coming back with a purpose. He is apparently uh, proud in a good way, happy. In the best way, he's thrilled to have celebrated before his God. And now he's coming home to bless his house. And this is what meets him. How spiritual was Saul? He was what? Initially, he was very spiritual. Okay. Initially, he was very humble. Yes, boys. He had humility, it seemed. That was in short supply, however. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was hiding among the baggage. And he said, why, why me? If the smallest of the clans and the smallest of the families in the smallest of clans, you're going to choose me to be king. So he had some degree of humility, it seemed, from what we read in the text, but then it's like, oh, okay, well, I'm king now. I can do what I want. And he started to get ugly and hateful and, 
didn't listen to people who were trying to advise him differently, and it was all about him. It, it just flipped from one to the other. It's kind of like years ago, uh, it was like I'd, I'd never really thought of it until somebody said it. They said, rich people aren't the only ones who are, uh, have problems with money in that they lust after money. Now, well, duh, of, of course. It's like it hit me. Well, that's true. It, poor people have just as much problem with money because it's what they think about all the time. Some, some. And so you don't have to be rich to have a problem with money, and you don't have to be initially proud to have a problem with pride. His, his pride took over to the point where he was trying to kill David. He, he didn't look at himself and say, you know, I've messed up, and God's working through me to replace me, and I need to cooperate with that. That was not his spirit at all. John? People, you know, power corrupts, and absolute power absolutely corrupts. Yes. Like in the military, I was friends with people that were E3s, and they took their E4 test and get a crow, and now all of a sudden they're talking, you know, goes to their head. Shut up and sit down. That's what power does. I knew you would just had two stripes. I don't want to sit down and shut up. It happens. It happens with small people. And I say small in kind of a, an ironic sense. Why would it be ironic? Because he was the biggest guy in the land. He was head and shoulders above everybody physically. But spiritually and emotionally, he was pretty small. Rely upon his own understanding because he didn't beseech God in certain instances. It looks like that's exactly what happened. When, when God's prophet faces you with your wrong, what's the thing to do? You repent. No matter how big the wrong is, no matter how important the wrong is, you, you repent, you face it, you own it, and you change. You don't fight it. And that was not Saul's spirit. And so... It's like we're seeing that in his daughter here. I, I don't know all the ins and outs, but I know for what, for some reason the Holy Spirit of God said, I want you to write this in the record, that this was her attitude towards David, the man who was a man after God's own heart, her attitude towards David when the ark had been brought in to Jerusalem. There was no, and she, she didn't wait for him to get in the house. She met him outside. Do you see that part? When David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. It's like she couldn't wait to shame him to bring this up. And so she does this. And what does David say to her? Well, what Steve brought out, you know, I, God, God's the one who chose me. I didn't choose myself. God chose me above your dad. And if she was thinking right, regardless of family ties or or anything like that, she ought to be looking at the circumstances and say, you know, God let my dad die because he was in rebellion to God. He abandoned him because he abandoned God. And maybe there's a lesson for me to learn in there as his daughter, and maybe I don't need to be like him so much. Maybe there's something about this man, David, that God has chosen, who has blessed me with as a husband that I need to pay more attention to the way he thinks.
but that was not her spirit. She. Her spirit was different yes. because she she saved David. Right. She let him down in a basket, if I remember right, to escape uh, Saul's henchmen. Yeah. So something has changed. The dynamics have changed over the years. Yeah. yeah I, I, I could be mistaken, but I was thinking that she loved him at one time. She did. She must have loved him very much. And it's sad that all of that changed. Um, and I... See that she was portrayed today in this scripture. Wouldn't you like one more verse? says this this is what this was all about and God said here's why this is the way it's turning out with Michael but there isn't all we're seeing is her behavior we're seeing David's behavior and her behavior we've seen Saul's behavior and there wasn't even a verse that says now this is why Saul was doing all this it just said this is how he behaved it it's almost like God wants us to get the idea that how we behave is kind of important As a parent, those of you who are old enough in here to be parents, he gave us another verse. He would have. And, man, sometimes I wish he had, but he didn't. So we, we're left with this. This is what we have to wrestle with. And not to make too much of, but at the same time, there's obviously something here for us to, to learn. He says, you don't need more, Marty. I gave you enough. That's just exactly what you need right there. And so we read this, and we'll make of it what we will. But it's, it's a sad outcome for Michael. It says in verse 23, she had no child to the day of her death. Now, there's a statement there as well. What does that say? Isolated himself from her. Okay, she's, she's isolated. But I'm just isolated. No child. It's Luke chapter 2. I hadn't thought about this until just now. But in Luke chapter 2, and I, I know we've got family members who've had a hard time conceiving. And it's a, it's a difficult problem to deal with, especially in, with a woman who just really wants children. But this is what Zechariah Zechariah's wife Elizabeth said when she learned that she was going to have a child. Let's see here. Chapter 1 of Luke, verse 25. Elizabeth says, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. What was her only disgrace? Hadn't had a child. That was it. That's what she looked at as a disgrace. And she's saying, this is how the Lord's dealt with me to take away my disgrace. And when you think about it, how many women in the text of scripture have had this similar problem? Uh, and it's a 
it's a troublesome thing. So that was what was Michael's end. So that's where we are here. The, the ark has been brought into Jerusalem, but it's not without problems. Remember what Jesus said. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. The man's enemies are going to be those of his own household. That didn't become true when Jesus said it. It had always been true. When you choose God, there will be others who will not choose God. And sometimes they'll be very close to you. And when they do not choose God, you're going to have trouble. But there's no better trouble to have in the universe than to have the trouble of you choosing God in spite of those you love and care about not choosing God. You're, you're making a choice that is a privileged choice. So, all right, let's move on to chapter 7. And we're going to read the first seven verses and then 8 through 11. And, well, let's read all the next three. 1 through 7, 8 through 11, and then 12 to 17. This, this is huge. Uh, it might not jump off the page, but when you think about it, this, this is pretty huge. All right, who's got the first one, seven, 1 through 7? Anybody want to read that? Oh, Charles, you wanted to read a while ago. You want to take 1 through 7? All right. Are you still working on a problem back there? Um, always. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, he, he warned me before class. He said, we might have to bring the remote mic down. Though you were having some issues with the regular system. So nothing, nothing so far. Sounds great to me. All right, who wants 8 through 11? Chapter 7, 8 through 11. Anybody want to read that? Got any readers? I'll read it. If you're not tired of hearing me talk, oh, Kay jumps, oh, no, I don't want to hear him anymore. I'll read that. <laughs> I know, just messing with you. And then 12 through 17. Finish up chapter, the, this part of chapter 7, 12 through 17. Anybody? All right, I'll do that. Okay, Rich. Rich is going to do it again. Excellent. Got good readers. Charles? Now it came about... When the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I live in a house of cedar, but the ark of God remains within the tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go, and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Should you build me a house for my dwelling? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. Rather, I have been moving about in a tent, that is, in a dwelling place. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built a house for me out of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to 
When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits inequity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my love and kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So what did you want to do? Build a house for the Lord. Where did he get this idea? When did it come to him? His house made of cedar. Wow. Can you imagine what it smelled like in there? A house made of cedar. Remember Hiram, king of Tyre? When, king, when David became king, he brought cedars down and he, and he built David a house. And he sent all the carpenters, all the craftsmen to, to do it. And so David's in this magnificent house that's been built for him in Jerusalem. And where's the ark? It's in a tent. So it seems to me natural that he would, in his own house, so you know what? The ark's out there in a tent. And so he says, I think I'm, I'm going to build a house for the ark. So who does God send to David? Nathan the prophet. And what's he telling? It almost seems strange. Well, he finally says, go ahead. What's he say at first? Well, what does God say at first through Nathan? When did I ever ask anybody to build me a house? All this time. I ever ask anybody to build me a house? It's like, well, I don't know. Is God making a point? Okay, I don't want you to do stuff that I don't ask you to do. Don't be volunteering things. Don't get your own ideas about stuff. Like Isaiah would say later on, my, my thoughts are above your thoughts, my ways above your ways. And so God says, I never asked anybody to build me a house. However, you want to build me a house? Here's what I'm going to do. What does God say he's going to do? And if you missed it, I want you to pick it up. In verse 11, 
The temple that David will build is secondary. There's something first. There's something primary. What is that? It's not the temple or the house David will build for God. It is the house God will build for David. But David's already got a house. What's he talking about? Forever lineage, a house. Just like we say, a house is not a home. A house is a place to live, but it's not a home until you make it a home. And God says, I'm going to give you a house. I'm going to give you something more than any structure that could be built. I'm going to give you this lineage, and this lineage will be known as your house. From the house of David. Who's coming from the house of David? Jesus Christ will come from the house of David. Isaiah would prophesy, as as Micah would as well. The mountain of the house of the Lord, the mountain of the house of the Lord, will be established where? In Jerusalem, in the tops of the mountains. And the idea of mountain was that of power to the Jewish mind. That's where the power was. Hmm. I will lift up mine eyes where? To the hills. Where's my help come from? Well, he doesn't say it comes from the hills, but it says it comes from the Lord. But he's lifting up his eyes to the hills. You see the connection? The hills, the mountains, the power of the Lord, the majesty of God. And so Isaiah and Micah talk about the mountain of the Lord's house being established in the tops of the mountains. And it's all about this establishment of the house of David and the house of God being established through his lineage. Down the line, Jesus is going to be coming into the world through his lineage. And that's what God is talking about here. And we still speak of of Jesus Christ as the son of David. Son of man, son of David. Son of man from Daniel chapter 7. That's how uh, when he talks about being the son of man, any Jewish mind would go to Daniel chapter 7, because it was the Son of Man who came before God, the Ancient of Days, and was given a kingdom and power and glory. So there's all this uh, coming together. Everything in Scripture comes together like the the teeth and the, the cogs in a wheel, all the gears meshing together perfectly. And that's what we're seeing here. David says, I want to I want to build you a temple. I want to build you a house, put your ark in. And God says, all right, you can do that. I never asked anybody to do that, but but you can do that, although technically not you, David, but your son Solomon. Yeah. Why could David not do it? He was shed a lot of blood. And and God doesn't make a distinction whether it's the blood that was shed uh, unjustly, like uh, Uriah the Hittite. Or if it's just that he killed a lot of people in battle, it, it doesn't say one way or the other. But he shed a lot of blood. And so God apparently did not want his temple to be connected with that. So he says, I'm going to set your son up in peace and he will build my temple. So David started laying up supplies and resources for that temple to be built. That's where we are. All right. That's, to me, this is a, a big deal. And I hope you see it as a big deal as well. All right. On the first three verses, David asked advice of Nathan the prophet. You know, he came to him and said, hey, this is what's on my mind. 
David said, go ahead and do it. You know, just do all that's in your mind. Just do it. And then, But then the word of the Lord came to Nathan after that and said, did I ever ask you for all this? Did I ever want all this? And he just he goes through all of that. And then he says, I'm going to give it to your ancestors. I'm going to do it for you, but it's going to be your ancestors that do it. I don't know if that's pertinent or not, but it just seems like both of them. I mean, David did the right thing by asking the prophet, hey, what do you think? You know, he said, go do it. It's like Nathan the prophet didn't even ask God first. Just, yeah, do all that you want. Even he kind of, in the word of the Lord, came to the prophet and said, well, now wait a minute. You know, he spoke a little silly you know, to me. But then uh, he said, go, go ask David all these questions. And he said, well, your aunt, basically your ancestors are going to do this, not you. One of the things I want us to look at before our class is over are, are all the times it records in the text that David asked God. And every time David asked God, he got instruction from God. And when he did what God said, everything turned out great. But eventually there will be times when David would do things without asking God. And it's interesting that we see this here, this, this little give and take between David and Nathan and God, between the three of them. And I, I really appreciate you bringing that out because I, I think it's important. It's almost like Nathan wasn't really thinking he just said, yeah, well, that, that sounds like a great idea to me. And this will happen to you and me, too. Somebody will ask us about things, and, and we'll say, yeah, that looks great. You'll, you know, you'll be sitting at home one night watching TV. And because hey, we're, I got these trucks on sale. Go, Man, that looks like a good deal. I've been needing a new truck. I think I'll go buy a new truck. And you never ask God because it just looked like a good deal. It just seemed obvious. Does God care whether or not you buy a new truck? I think he does. I think he wants to be involved in everything. And why wouldn't you want to involve God in a, these days, an $80,000 purchase? Good night. It's ridiculous. Ask me why I drive an 09, drive an 09 Highlander. It's not hard to figure it out. John, you had your hand up. You know, you said that David, God wouldn't let David be ahead because of all the blood on his hands. Depending on how he got it, like a battle and stuff like that, it changes you mentally. So maybe he didn't have the right mindset, you know, or whatever. It changed him too much for the other, you know, not on the good side. From hand-to-hand combat battle, I mean, with the sword and all that, it changes you, as you probably well know. Maybe that disqualified him to where he couldn't see everything clearly? Possibility seems to me. And here's your research question. It seems to me that somewhere there's a passage that talks about Solomon being a man of peace. Not that he didn't have a military, but he wasn't the man of war that David was. And there was an association, it seemed to me, that, that God wanted with the peacefulness and the, the construction of a, of a temple by a man who was a peaceful man rather than a man who was a man of war. Bruce? Man. What's that? There are times you need a, a, a man of war or two. Oh, absolutely. And David seemed to be the very best choice at the time, but I don't think that he got out of it scot-free. Well, who was the best man to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Well, that was Moses. Who was the best man to bring them into the promised land? Oh, okay. That wasn't Moses. That was Joshua. Things things change. 
Uh, there are some subtleties there and some things that are not quite so subtle. Bruce? I don't recall ever seeing anything where Solomon led into a battle. Mm-hmm. And talks about his wisdom and, and of course, he sinned. And did a lot of things like, like David, but, uh, but it never recounts him shedding blood. It does David. Right. Just like his thousand foreskins for Saul's daughter. Right. Or, or so, no. Uh, you don't see that. Like you said, you just don't see him doing that in the scripture. Right. So, and maybe that was why. So this brings up the question. Why was Solomon enjoying peace? Because his dad had made sure that their enemies were put in their place, and that's exactly what God helped him to do. Hey, Jacob, good to see you, man. So we've got this situation where, where David is a man after God's own heart, but God says, all right, you're a man after my heart. I'm going to build you a house, but I don't want you to build my temple. Oh, well. Okay, that's interesting. I want Solomon to build it. How did Solomon turn out? Man, he was a skirt chaser like nobody's business. I've, I've made the comment about how many wives David had, you know, and then he got to Jerusalem and he got more wives and more concubines, and then he messed around with Bathsheba. Man, that was a mess. How many wives did Solomon turn out having? 700 wives. How do you do anything but go to weddings? Can you in the showers? My God. all the pla- the inv- the paper that they used for invitations, and then he had on top of that oh, oh, poor choice of words. Three hundred concubines, seven hundred wives, three hundred concubines, and that would be Solomon's downfall. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> now, some of those marriages were political. He, he married women to, to make peace with the nations. But the bottom line is, this text says it, it pulled his heart away from God. David's heart was fully committed to God. But we're not done. Uh, Steve? I think basically all the world, all kingdoms, are uh, based on power, mm-hmm. and they got that way because of strength or might. So God established yeah. this system yeah. and peaceful means. Yeah. When Christ came, He said the angel said peace on earth, mm-hmm. and God's kingdom would be uh, recognized. It, it came. It's a kingdom of peace, right. and uh, so to look to David. To establish a kingdom and a temple, it would be, one would think it was through power and his might, but God had different. He brought his kingdom through peace. Right. And today when, when I'm having a discussion with people and they talk about Islam being a religion of peace, you don't have to talk about what's going on today with Islam. Who started Islam? Muhammad started Islam, and he was a man of war. And that's how Islam spread all across North Africa and up into Europe. It was by conquest. So anybody who claims that Islam is a religion of peace, all you need to do is, well, let's go back and look at what Muhammad did. 
And it doesn't matter what anybody else does. If Muhammad is the one who's a man of war, then it's maybe not a religion of peace so much. Yes. His first son started this. Adam's first son, you mean Cain? No, I'm sorry. Uh, Abraham's first son. Abraham's first son. They say they're descendants of Ishmael. They're they're, they're Abraham's descendants through Ishmael. Okay. That's a pretty commonly held belief, and there's some substantiation for that, that the Arabs are the children of Ishmael. Uh, there are others who say, no, that's, that's not true, and that's a misrepresentation, misinterpretation, but it's, there's some evidence for it. And it... Uh, when, when you go back and you read about Ishmael, it says that uh, his hand will be against every man. And so if, if the Arabs are the descendants of Ishmael, then... That would be the circumstance. And, and even if they're not, if you look at the map of, of the Middle East and you see Israel, tiny little Israel, we were there for several days, and we went all over that country in a bus just driving around, smaller than Oklahoma. It's like, yeah, it's not very big. And then you look all over, what's all around Israel? Enemies all over the place. It's almost like God says, you want me to prove to you that I'm powerful? I'm going to put these people that everybody knows are my people, that the Jews, and I'm not saying they're his people now, that they are the, the church or the kingdom or the saved. That's not what I mean by this. It's just that everybody knows who the Jews are, that they are the people God brought into existence through one man, through Abraham, and him as good as dead, and they still exist. Think of all the nations that have gone into oblivion since the Jews have come on the scene. And in a little while, we're going to read, uh, good Lord willing, during the sermon, we'll read from Isaiah 66, where God talks about establishing a nation. And he's going to use the, uh, uh, the, the terms of giving birth. He says, look, she gives birth, and then she goes into travail. It's like, what? Nobody ever heard of that happening? Well, what he's talking about is God bringing the Israelites back out of uh, Babylonian bondage in mass, and they're going to, boom, they're going to be a nation. You don't grow a nation one little bit at a time. You just bring a nation over and put them in place. He said, that's never happened before. And that's So where was I going with that? I don't know. <laughs> Somebody remind me where I was. Oh, talking about the, the Arabs and the Ishmael. So, so God is... Has put the Israelites there, and they've not been conquered. And any time anybody goes to war against them, they get whooped bad. I mean, bad. And this is not to me. This is not the fulfillment of the Revelation or Ezekiel or anything like that. It's just God saying, "These are the people that are brought into existence, and are going to stay here as a testimony to my power." Until I come back. And then there's Masada. You know about Masada? The great uh, fortress that Herod had built and then left. And the Jews took it over when they had this rebellion in AD 70. And the Jews that fled Jerusalem as Jerusalem was being destroyed went to Masada. How did they end up? What happened to the Jews at Masada? Suicide. 
they cast lots and they say, okay, we're going to, the guys that draw the short straws are going to go and, and kill all their families and then we'll get together and we'll draw straws and then we'll kill the ones that get, the, and so when the Romans finally breach the walls, because the Romans were going to breach the walls, they'll find a bunch of dead people and we've all committed suicide. And it's, to me, and you can make of this what you will, and I don't mean to offend anybody who's Jewish, but here's the way it looks to me from a scriptural standpoint and from the historical standpoint. The Jews rejected Jesus' son. God sent his son, the Messiah. They rejected him. They crucified him. But his church was established in spite of all that. About 40 years later, Jerusalem falls, and God says, I'm taking Jerusalem out of the way because I want the temple gone. I want the priesthood gone. I want everything gone that smacks of Judaism. I said that word smack. I hate to use that word. But anything that has to do with Judaism, I'm taking it out of the way because my son's kingdom is all that matters now, and Judaism's gone. And those last few Jews who continued to reject the Messiahship of Jesus, escaped to Masada. And then what did they do? Well, they wound up killing their own children to try to escape what I believe was the judgment of God through the Romans. Now, you make of that what you will. But I look at that and I think, wow, do not reject God's son. Today is the day of salvation. How much clearer can he make it that he sends his son, he raises him from the dead, he gives us all these teachings that change our lives in positive ways, and people still say, uh, Jesus is not the way. Well, we got to quit. Lord willing, we'll come back next week to this. Thank you.